Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 925, my interview with Howard J. Ross. We're discussing his book, Our Search for Belonging. I really hope you enjoy this inspiring and very interesting conversation. Hey guys, welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. I hope you're well. Uh, lovely day here. It's in Australia. It's coming into winter. I love the change of seasons. It's uh, quite cooler. Um, so I hope you're enjoying your day wherever you are. Guys, this is a fantastic interview today, and I'm talking with Howard J. Ross. So we're talking about his new book, but we talk about his field of work, which is really identifying and addressing unconscious bias, the studies of the unconscious bias and how that affects our decision-making, which is sort of where we um, finish up our conversation today. We're talking about his book, Our Search for Belonging, how the need for connection is tearing our culture apart. So it's interesting in our, our society today, it seems to be becoming an increasingly large polarized society where we're divided in, in what we believe. And if you look at it in our individual lives, and we don't really think about this too much, um, but what we believe is usually shaped uh, or shapes our identity. And so we stick to it. We don't go out there to understand other opinions and perspectives. And perhaps um, that affects the quality of our lives and how well we enjoy this life. So it's an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I probably could have gone down different paths with this conversation. But I think for what it's worth, we had a great conversation and uh, certainly a lot of value and thought-provoking information in here that can leave you sort of reflecting on your life and how perhaps you can become more open-minded to benefit your life longer term. Guys, enjoy this one. Let us know what you think at hiddenwire.com. Cheers. G'day, Howard. Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. Hey, good to, good to be with you. Great to have you here, mate. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, inspiring work. You really uh, study um, unconscious bias, and I don't really know much about that, so perhaps we can start off our conversation there today. Um, but you've also written another book, um, Our Search for Belonging, which really sparked my interest in bringing you on mm. the show. So certainly looking forward to the, the conversation today. And uh, you're Great. over outside Washington, D.C. somewhere. Right. Yes, I'm just uh, just outside the suburbs of Washington D.C. So we're yeah. kind of right in the in the heart of things that are going on in our country right now. Okay, and been um, I guess been isolated for for a while now. Yes, we've been in um, for oh, I guess uh, more than two months now. We've been really inside and. Um, and I have to be particularly careful. I have some uh, scarring in my lungs from actually from tear gas burns when I was a kid doing work in civil rights. And so oh. um, so I have to be particularly careful because it makes me uh, high risk in this uh, in, in terms of COVID. So. OK, there you go. So really uh, staying indoors, how are you finding that? process. Yeah. Well, fortunately, um, you know, my wife and I get along really well with each other. So it's actually been quite nice and not <laughs> having good. to do all the business travel. You know, I'm used to for 35 years schlepping all over the country and the world. And um, it's kind of nice to be able to do more of the work this way and to stay home and, and uh, not be on airplanes so much, at least for a while. It's um, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I've, a lot of the people I've interviewed and, and just people that I know around here that I talk to, their whole situation with COVID and and how it's changed, you know, how we go about our daily lives has has in a lot of ways been a quite a positive thing too. Um, you yeah, know, I think there are an awful lot of. And, 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to say, I think there are an awful lot of people who are having more time with their family. I was talking to a mm. corporate exec who I work with, is the COO of a major company, and he was saying he's had dinner with his children every night for two months, virtually. And he said he can't remember a time when he's had dinner with his children three days in a row. So um, I think there are a lot of people who, when we start to emerge from beginning to emerge now, but when we start to emerge more, I think a lot of people are going to be reevaluating the way they've set their lives up for that very reason. Let's hope so. And I think that, you know, the whole eating with your children is, is something that I'm guilty of, you know, staying in the office until seven o'clock and missing out on that that time. And certainly in the last couple of months, I've done a lot more of it than ever before. Um, and it's something to be really valued. And I, I believe there's some some psychological developments uh, happening with children when, when the father is or both, you know, parents are there for dinner times um, as to how well they, they grow up and, and how more prone they are to go to alcohol or drugs. Uh, in their in their later years too, I've heard some yeah, research absolutely. on that. But um, yeah, absolutely. yeah, so shifting shifting our maybe making making us focus on more of what's important in life. And and I know even um, the New Zealand Prime Minister is talking about a four day work week, which is I just wow. think phenomenal. Um, and hopefully, you know, where we can shift in that way, where we're um, doing more purposeful work and and not working our, our backside off to have stuff that we don't really need and don't really appreciate in the long run. Yeah, I think so. And I know that there are a number of companies. Well, Twitter was, of course, one of the first to announce that they're going to allow this to be a permanent state, that people will not be coming into the office. And and uh, a number of the Silicon Valley companies have followed. And I think, you know, people are just realizing, well, hey, we can get 95 percent easily 95% is productive this way. In some cases, people are even more productive and we don't have to have all the office space. We could save a lot of money on overhead. So why not? And I think you're going to see probably that'll lead to, of course, a bump in commercial real estate, a negative bump in commercial real estate. But I think in the long run, it may lead to people having a lot more satisfying family lives. And and that, of course, leads to leads to their being able to be better employees. Mm. And maybe we could use those commercial spaces for, uh, you know, bringing people together and, and different you know, more social activities rather than yeah, work activities. Abs- yeah, absolutely. That's pretty cool. And tell us, just going back to your, your lung scarring and um, tear gas, mm-hmm. civil rights, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what's your background? What, what has gotten you into your field of work? Sounds well, I, you know, that, that was kind of where I grew up. I, I was probably 15 or 16 when I did went to my first civil rights meeting and um, got involved in that. And then, you know, I was, I'm 69 years old, so I was born in 1951. January of 1951, just in the shadow of World War II, which is particularly significant in my family because we're Jewish and our family came from Eastern Europe. And so we had enormous Holocaust loss in our family. We know that 43 members of our family died in August 2nd to 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis killed all but 100 of the 5,000 Jews who who lived in the village my grandfather came from. So so I grew up in the shadow of that. And at the same time, I had grandparents, um, my grandfather, who I just mentioned, who became an activist. He was... uh, the leader of the group that purchased and outfitted the Exodus ship in Baltimore Harbor, and also was a was a founding member of the NAACP, which of course is a is a racial healing group um, here in the United States in in Baltimore, where he was. And my grandmother on the other side was an, was a, a, a mobilizer for the uh, International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So we got two very important messages growing up. One was that bad things can happen. 
And the other is that you're supposed to do something about it. So my path, I went into teaching right out of college and um, spent 12 years as a teacher and a school administrator with young children. And then um, and then at that point, uh, sort of got involved in organizational change work and became a consultant and actually came out of my own failure as a school administrator when I tripled the size of the program in a year and found out that nothing that I knew about managing people worked anymore. Mm. So I went back and studied organizational development and leadership and went into consulting. And the two parts of my life came, and I also, as I said, was involved in civil rights and the anti-war movement farm workers union and all of that and the two things came together in the mid 80s when the diversity movement started in organizations uh first in the united states and then increasingly around the world Mm. and um and it sort of grew from there and uh you know i've been doing that now for 35 years yeah wow uh all the dots have connected to to um to to your life i suppose and and i think that's interesting Mm. how the you know from when you were 15 to um, different fields of study have led you to this um, more refined field of work as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so this book you've written, um, what was the reason for writing this book, Our Search for Belonging? Well, you know, I've always been somebody who was um, who was encouraged to see things from both sides. My, my parents used to do this thing with us sometimes when we were we were kids and we'd be sitting at the dinner table. We used to have one of those little transistor TVs, you know, the little things with the four-inch screens, and we would sometimes watch the news while we were eating dinner. And right. um, and occasionally my parents would stop and they'd turn it off and they'd say, okay, you know, when there's something controversial, they'd say, you argue for this side of that conversation and you argue for that side. And we would have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of people, even if we didn't agree, put ourselves in the shoes of people on that side to see if we could figure out where they were coming from. It was a great exercise, um, but, you know, we never liked it as kids, but it was a great exercise. And then later, just, uh, um, you know, I just I, I just always was able to sort of put myself on the other side of the conversation. And I noticed that as the polarization was was ramping up in our culture, and particularly as we hit the, the election last time, the 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, 16 election and the the precursors to that, that it was getting deeper and deeper and I could feel myself getting sucked into it. So out of my curiosity about what is it that causes human beings to tribalize like this, um, you know, the the book was born. So what do you mean tribalize? I mean, go into this separate... Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that we know is that is that as human beings, and this is one of the things the research showed us, and I want to also acknowledge John Robert Tartaglione, who helped me with the book, um, that um, that as human beings, we have an inherent uh, tendency to divide between us and them. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's undoubtedly a survival technique, probably goes back thousands of years when we were living in caves and jungles, and we would see people around a water hole, and we had to make an instant determination whether it was us or them. And if we made the wrong determination, we died. So, um, so being able to determine who's safe and who's not safe very quickly, um, who's one of us and who's one of them very quickly is, is part of our survival instinct. And, um, and uh, in no- normal circumstances, uh, those, those bonds are really healthy for us. Um, because they help us feel supported, and then we have br- we bridge to the other side. We often can bridge to the other side. So I know I know that I'm in this group, but I also have friends in that group, and I make connections in that group. And if we look at it from a political standpoint, historically, it mostly has lived like a bell curve, where you know most people were in the middle, and they sort of based on any particular um, position they had, they might you know collaborate on this side or collaborate that side. So you and I might, for example, issues 
mostly U.S.-based issues. Uh, you know, we might agree on gun rights, but disagree on civil rights, but agree on foreign policy, but disagree on economic policy, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, not unusual. But what's happened over time is that bell curve has turned, I like to say it's turned into a dumbbell curve where everything's on the end and nothing's in the middle. And compromise now is seen as a dirty word. And so instead of bonding for that sense of safety and security, we're bonding against the other side. Um, And it's no longer I disagree with you about this issue or that issue. It's now you're one of those people and I'm one of these people. And so we literally are in these competing tribes. And um, And and you've you've found that more paramount uh, nowadays than ever before. Yes, absolutely. It's happening more now than certainly in my lifetime. And I've been around a while. And and I go back to the 60s when we had a lot of tension and a lot of societal discord, um, not only here, but around the world. And even then, it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So we're not not really bonding anymore as much as we did, even though we didn't agree with everything that um, perhaps our peers or friends or colleagues or whatever may have had. Well, we're 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 bonding with our side. In mm. fact, maybe more than ever. But we're not bridging to the other side. And and part of it, and you know, another big uh, piece of it, Lee, is that um, we're not getting information from a central source anymore. You know, it used to be you'd have a couple of TV stations you go to, and everybody basically accepted that this was accurate information. You know, you think about your major newspaper, your major TV stations, you know, the big networks and things like that were where we went for information. And we all went to that same information, but probably interpreted it a little bit differently. Now, because of cable, because of podcasts, because of social media, because of all these new media forms that we have, we now draw information largely from most people, that is, um, largely from sources that are, create almost like a bubble that we're in, where we get we, we hear a repeating loop of things that we agree with. Um, most of it is punditry, and that's the other thing. In those days, it used to be that it was considered unethical for a news person to have an opinion. They were supposed to be just giving the news. Now, 80% of what we see in the news is punditry. And so yeah. we're kind of we're, we're participating, each of us is participating, if we buy into that system, into our own brainwashing. You know, that that this is the way it is and they're the devil over there. And the more we do that, of course, the, it becomes a, a, a self-replicating loop because the more we develop those strong opinions, the less we want to look at the other side, the less we want to look at the other side, the more our opinions get calcified until the point where we have, you know, quicker, so we might call the quicker it we are to psych- judge. Right, exactly. So you develop what, what we might call psychosclerosis, hardening of the attitudes, you know. Mm. So does this mean there's a lot more segmentation too then because there's obviously going to be a lot more differing opinions and so the tribes are going to be uh, somewhat more niche or smaller? Yeah, well, there. Well, we have the tribes, and then we have sub tribes inside of those tribes. You know, I think, and this is this is one of the things we realize that the nature of human beings is to figure out us versus them. And I think most people who are listening have probably had a circumstance where there were deep divisions within their own family, but as soon as somebody else comes into the pictures outside of the family, everybody coalesces together against that person. You know, there's a a joke yeah. I heard one time. Hmm. Uh, it's been called the the um, funniest religious joke of all time, and it, it was by uh, comes from a guy named Emo Phillips. And, and the joke goes that a, a guy's 
crossing a bridge and he sees somebody about to climb over and jump off. So he runs over and he says, don't jump, don't jump. Why are you going to jump? And the jumper says, well, nobody loves me. And the rescuer says, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And, and the rescuer says, yeah. And the guy says, good. So do I. And I mean, the jumper says, yes. And the rescuer says, good. So, so do I. And the rescuer says, you know, what religion are you? And the jumper says, you know, I'm Christian. He says, great. Me too. He says, what subdenomination? He says, Baptist. He says, me too. The rescuer says, he says, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And the jumper says, Northern Baptist. The rescuer says, me too. He says, Northern Baptist Eastern Region or Northern Baptist Western Region? And jumper says, Northern Baptist Eastern Region. And the rescuer says, me too. And the rescuer says, Northern Baptist Eastern Region, Charter of 1840 or Charter of 1878? And the jumper says, Charter of 1878. The rescuer says, die heretic and pushes him off the bridge. You know? <laughs> and, and this is kind of the nature of who we are. You know, we're always looking at where do we connect and where are we separate? Where do we connect and where are we separate? And I think most people have seen that happen, that, you know, you've got somebody who you, you're not particularly comfortable with, but as soon as somebody from outside comes, all of a sudden the two of you are in it again. Does your research in your book go into why we are searching for that, that lost connection rather yeah. than looking for what we're connected about and focusing on that rather than looking at, you know, we always seem to go, where are we? Why are we different? Rather than, you know, well, why, do, why do we go right. for that? Well, I think that the, the reason we're, we're inherently social animals, human beings are inherently social animals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this starts from the time we're born. If you think about it, the most vulnerable time of human existence is childbirth, right? Yeah. A newborn human baby needs to be cared for longer than virtually any other animal on the planet. Um, you know, two, three, four years, whatever it is, we need constant support. And, and when we're infants, of course, if we don't have somebody taking care of us, we will die in a matter of days. So, so the first imprint we get as human beings is I exist because you exist, whether it's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, the orphanage, whoever's taking care of us. And, and this builds a particular pattern in us, which is um, this notion that in order, to, in order to survive, we need to get along with people around us. We need to be included in the community around us. And most of us, uh, I'm sure, uh, very few people who are listening have uh, have not had an experience where you did something you weren't comfortable with, but you did it because everybody else was doing it, or you didn't do something you wanted to do because nobody else wanted to do it. And mm. of course, we see this in some really fundamental ways where it becomes groupthink in businesses or in situations. You know, one of the very famous circumstances of that here in the United States was the Challenger disaster. Um, a company named Morton Thiokol produced what we call the O-rings, which is the gauges, the gauge that failed, that, that created the Challenger, the Challenger space shuttle disaster. And, um, and it turns out that there were a couple people in Morton Thiokol who had concerns about it, but because everybody else thought it was fine, they just kind of went along with it. And sure enough, you know, here we are with an exploding rocket ship. So, yeah. um, and, and there are hundreds of examples that everybody's experienced where this happens, where people just sort of go along because they want to fit in and they don't want to feel like the outsider. Yes. And that's going back to that survival instinct. Exactly. You don't want to be the one out on the ice floe by yourself. Hmm. So looking at these these biases, I suppose, and I mean, you're sort of saying that the the, the digital age is is sort of increasing um, our our you know these biases, I suppose, and and us versus them mentalities. Well, it's definitely increasing the us versus them mentality. I mean, I think because, um, as I said, because you're not you don't have to be exposed. In fact, you have to work hard to be exposed to a broad range of information because most 
news sources, unless you happen to watch the public news source or what some news source that's completely isolated from all the you know effects of the various different political biases, most news sources these days have a have a lean to them. Um, and and so if you're you know here in the states, if you're watching Fox News, you get a very different framework than if you're watching, let's say CNN. I mean, we we've seen it just here. I'm sure. I'm sure people know about the um, the protests that are going on in the United States now, relevant to a police shooting, a police killing of an African American man in in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and the last couple of days, we've been watching different stations, and if you watch CNN, um, it's the constant story, um, nothing else. If you turn to Fox, very little mention of it. So, hmm. um, so, um, so, depending upon what you see, you get this information, and the information tends to reaffirm the belief systems that we already have. So we, you know, we're in this self-perpetuating loop. Right, that's not going to help it. How do, um, where do you in America go to to find sort of an unbiased source of factual news? Well, it's really funny because everybody says, you know, you talk to most people and they'll say, oh, I wish I could just get the news of all this other stuff. And we do have a thing like that. It's called the PBS NewsHour, Public Broadcasting System NewsHour, but almost nobody watches it. So, you know, I, I right. think that we say that we we say that we want to. Um, He's here the other side. Uh, but I think most people tend to drift back to being with people who we agree with because it's easier to fit in. I know that, you know, for the book, I interviewed, ended up interviewing over 100 people who voted for President Trump because my politics tend to be on the other side. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said to me, I can't believe you wasted time talking to all those idiots. You know, where all I was doing was trying to understand where they were coming from. But I think this is the nature of where we are right now. We've moved from this sense that we're all one to, like I said before, two competing tribes. And of course, the challenge is when you're in that mindset is if 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 your identity is fixed, if, if you're coming from a position of identity as mm-hmm. opposed to issue orientation, then almost any behavior is justified to maintain the your ability to hold on to that. I mean, I, I see a lot of people, and even in my own circles, where, yeah, we don't have the same views on certain topics or things, and, and we're still best buddies and, you know, can hang out, and there's no harm. And even if that sort of topic does come up, it's not going to tear us apart. Um, is that because we have more parts that we're connected about than less? Or yeah, is there I, I, something else there that we're not seeing? Yeah, I think that that look, and and I've tried to cultivate that um, certainly uh, throughout my life, but also um, more recently. You know, I've consciously gone out on social media and tried to develop relationships with people from the other side, and we have we have fierce debates about the issues, but it doesn't become personal. It's not mm-hmm. about you know, the the identity of the person, and those, and there's nothing. I think that's really healthy. I mean, I I think it's really healthy to have people in your life who disagree with you because it does give you a perspective of of you know another person, another side of life, whether that's different by um, the position you take or different by identity, you know, coming from different racial, cultural, ethnic groups or different, you know, friends, different genders, different sexual orientation. All of that, I think, really enhances our life because it gives us a broader perspective, you know, but the challenge, the challenge is that as these um, as these uh, divisions deeper deepen, rather, it becomes harder and harder to bridge across them. And uh, people become more tentative having the conversations. And because we're only getting information from sources that agree with us, we no longer consider the other point of view at all reasonable or rational. And um, and it's not we rationally came to do different points of view. It's now, you know, I'm good and you're evil, or I'm sane and you're insane, or I'm smart and you're stupid, or the other characterizations of that dismiss and devalue people. Mm. I suppose I don't maybe, you know, on the conscious level, see these uh, in my own life as much and 
maybe I'm just not as passionate about certain things or don't don't hold them so closely to my identity as maybe others, but I'm sure they're there. I'm sure, you know, they come up from time to time where um, I am judged for, for my opinions or vice versa, I judge others for their opinions, um, even though yeah. we're still hanging out. Um, well, I think that we, I think that we in America have taken this to a, to a farther level, probably mm-hmm. than you have as well. And I think culturally, there's also, you know, American culture is built on this kind of notion of individuality. And my point of view, my everything is needs to be better than everybody else's, which is, you know, one of the things that inspires people to do extraordinary things on their own. But it also has a shadow side, which is that um, we are not as good at um, at collective thinking at coming together and collaboration, which is one of the reasons you see the mess we're in relative to COVID, because we can't even agree as a culture that it's smart to stay in for a little while to let this thing play itself out rather than continue to reinfect each other. And we have lots of places in the country now where people are coming out much too fast. And I just read an article this morning that Arizona, one of the states that was the first to open up, is now having a big spike coming in a couple weeks later because uh-huh. people are not people are not patient enough. Yeah, yeah. So, what what are the the larger effects here? I mean, as far as as yeah, these differences, uh, how are they affecting our culture? Well, I think one of the things that tends to happen when we're in a circumstance like this is, you know, as I said, it's it's sort of this this snowballing effect because mm-hmm. now that I've decided that I'm right and you're wrong. Um, it starts with the candidates themselves, and there's nothing wrong with judging candidates because, of course, when people run for office, that's what they're doing. They're putting out and they're saying, "You judge me and vote on me," you know. So that's fine. There's nothing wrong with saying, "I think this candidate's a fool," or "This candidate is, does doesn't know what they're talking about." We've done that for years, of course. Hmm. The problem is, it's gotten to the point where we're making the assumption that anybody who supports that candidate is also that, and and that's that was one of the interesting things that I found when I did the interviews with with the Trump supporters is that more than half of them said that they voted more against Clinton than they voted for Trump. They weren't necessarily really supporters of his. They voted for him. But in a lot of cases, they said, I held my nose and voted for him because I just couldn't vote for her. Or maybe it was, I didn't like him, but abortion is the main issue for me. And he's on my side of that issue. Or guns, gun rights is the big issue for me. As you know, that's a big issue here in the States and yeah. you know, things, things like that. Um, but what ends up happening is, as we get more and more cloistered so that the only people who we're hanging out with and talking to and getting information from and, and engaging with are people who agree with us, the other side seems less and less and less rational, less and less and less viable. And um, and pretty soon um, we've so otherized them that we really don't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah, but it's a hard situation. Like when you're talking about the, the presidential candidates there, and, and I'm not a political person, but if I go over and choose Trump because of gun rights or whatever, um, on that same side who's sort of selecting Trump, not because they necessarily like all of his views, but just certain things, then within that group there's going to be all these things that are different from each other. Mm-hmm. So That's how, right. And, how then do you and, bridge that gap? Like, okay, well, we've all voted for him, but maybe we don't want to admit that because of X, Y, and Z. Um, but I don't agree with you. Like, why isn't there a more um, diverse range of, of candidates? Well, I think, well, you know, one of the problems, of course, we have in the states is because we're, a, you know, we're a two-party system. Um, there is, no, it's almost impossible for a third candidate or a third or fourth candidate to really have a, a chance of winning, because the whole, because the whole structure is driven towards two parties. I, you know, I actually think that we would be a lot better off if we had a multi-party system, because in a multi-party system, largely, in order for a candidate to to win, they've got to form coalitions. 
You know, you can't you can't be just with your people if you've got, you know, in, in countries where you've got, you know, six, eight, ten parties, um, you know, one party is not likely to get a majority. So in order for me to put together a government, I've got to link up with this this group and this group and this group, which mm. calls me to 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 find ways to develop those coalitions. Instead, we're in a situation where it's how much power can I acquire and what do I need to do to acquire that power? And um, and of course, when you throw in the measure of um let's say alternative facts that people, you know, that we don't have, as I said before, a standard place to go in terms of really accepting what's going on and, and, and agreeing that, that this is a source of actual factual information. Um, then you're really in hot water because I can find on the internet or other place I can find, you know, I can always find somebody to, to give me some information that justifies my point of view. So you you may be familiar, for example, with this video. Um, it's It was called Plandemic. That was around for a while. It's disappeared because everybody finally realized it was nonsense. But it's this story of this, this you know, scientist who, who um, and it's this whole falsified story about this conspiracy theory that supposedly this, this you know, pandemic was created intentionally to weed out the population, all this kind of, not, well, it was complete fraud. Hmm. And all you needed to do was go online for three minutes and you could find the information to show that it was a fraud. But people who were um, either uh, against the lockdown or people who were anti-vaxxers, you know, hooked onto this and were sending it around social media like crazy. And, and, you know, a, a good a good documentarian can make anything seem plausible in a documentary by using selective facts and selective yeah. information. Yeah. Um, so I think that that, you know, the, the tendency to have the information be fed in this way um, becomes really problematic for us because uh, most people don't either have the time or take the time to find out, is this true? You know, do you run it by a, a fact check site and see if it's true? And because somebody calls something fake news, doesn't make it fake news. It's just a way to, to diminish it. And so, and so ultimately, um, you know, we turn to the people who we generally trust because they generally agree to us and we just accept what they say. Yeah. So a multi-party system would allow um, more diverse education, I suppose, too, and more yeah, opinions I mean, to come to the forefront so we could yeah, and I and I know there there are challenges in multi-party systems too. So I'm not saying it's some you know uh, you know fault-free panacea, but but I think it I think it it does tend to broaden out the spectrum and not have it be so polarized in a binary way. Yeah, and I think I'm you know I can see myself you know reading something or looking through a social news feed or whatever it might be, and selectively mm. picking the things that I'm going to read and not read based on a heading or you know whatever catches my attention. Um. Mm. How, how do we as an individual start to because you, you, you're sort of suggesting that this this search for belonging and this need to fit where we're not actually looking for more information we're just staying to our side of the story and our identity rather than looking beyond that how do we mm. as an individual go out there and, and deliberately start to to practice this you know search for a deeper connection with others outside our field well, I think it, you know, Lee. It really starts with what you're saying, and and that is the word deliberately. I think that we need to. It has to be something that we take on each for ourselves, and to recognize that it's not going to just accidentally come our way because the system is designed to do exactly what it's doing. You know, the system is designed for this station to grab us and have us be their base, and that station to grab them and have it be their base. And mm. so, um, so that means starting to inform yourself of other people's points of view, and that means watching other news stations, getting other news feeds. 
on your your phone or your iPad or whatever you use. Um, you know, having your news feed not come from single sources or single points of view. Um, you know, consciously going in and reaching out to other people who disagree with you and having conversations for understanding rather than for convincing. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of times we get into these conversations and they immediately become debates. And I'm trying to convince you of my point of view and you're trying to convince me of your point of view, as opposed to, <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to having a conversation that's designed just to, for us to understand the other point of view. So, for example, one of the tools I could leave people with is a very simple little tool that um, I, I call um, uh, taking the other to lunch. And um, and basically, um, the way it works is you, you find somebody you have a difference with, a different point of view mm-hmm. about something or comes from a different perspective or cultural background or whatever. And, and you just agree, we're going to have a conversation. And um, the point of this conversation is just to understand each other. We're not going to try to convince each other. We're not going to try to judge each other. We're just going to try to understand where we're coming from. And then you, you give each other enough time to ask four questions and each have relatively the same amount of time to answer each question. And the first question is, you know, what in your life experience has led you to think the way you think. And so you, you share with the person where your thinking comes from. And this is really important because, of course, we realize that, you know, gee, if I had lived that life experience, I could see that I would feel that way, too. That's a fairly open question, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you get a sense of the narrative of somebody's life that has led them to that point of view. Mm-hmm. And then the second the second question is, what is it about the other point of view that concerns you or scares you? Um, because that's where the reactivity comes from. Fear is always the source of our reactivity. And so if we can get people to say, wow, you know, I'm really worried if that would happen. Da, 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 da. So now I understand why you're concerned. Now, now that's already a bridge for us to be able to down the road if we wanted to find some solutions because if I know what your concerns are maybe I can figure out a way to do what I want that addresses your concerns um, and or maybe I can tailor it back a little bit or, or something like that so so that's an important one and then the third one is is there anything that you wanted to ask somebody with this point of view that you've never asked before so you get a chance to do some inquiry work with each other Gee, why do you you know um, why do you know people who believe in this do such and such, or why you know that sort of a thing? And then the final one is a chance to clean up any past, um, you know, anything you've done in the past, and now you realize was really inappropriate. You know, I can give you an example of what I'm talking about really quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I did a mediation between two guys. Uh, came up in a public event I was facilitating. One of them was um, was uh, 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 he was straight, heterosexual, African-American guy who came from a, a, a church background and um, a very religious background, and the other was a, a white gay man. And the um, the straight guy had, in the middle of a conversation, said, well, in my church, we believe that homosexuality was a sin, which offended the other guy, and he ended up leaving, created a big furor. So I did a mediation between the two of them. And we started the first question. The gay guy told his story, which was not an unusual story. You know, he, he uh, came out when he was a teenager, got pretty good family support. He'd been with his partner for many, many years. They'd adopted two children like that. And he talked about, you know, what it was like for him. And then the other guy, the other guy waited in and his story was that he grew up in a very difficult part of the community where there was a lot of gang violence and had lost a number of friends to gang violence when he was a kid. And the only, the, the reason he survived, he believed was because of the church. So his attitude was, I don't challenge my pastor. You know, it's almost like you could imagine in his mind, it's almost like a Chinese puzzle where it would all come apart if you started challenging it. And immediately the first guy said, wow, I don't, I don't 
agree with your point of view, but I can get how you would get there growing up in that environment, you know? So immediately it starts to soften. And then, you know, the second question, they asked what they were each afraid of and they, they shared that. And then they got to the third question. That was the big, big moment really when, um, the straight guy says to the gay guy, he says, um, so when did you decide you were gay? And, um, the response he gets from the other guy is, well, when did you decide you were straight? And his jaw just dropped out. He said, I didn't. I just was. And the gay guy says, yeah, me too. And the guy's jaw, the straight guy's jaw dropped. And it's first time he really got the difference between sexual preference and sexual orientation. Hmm. You know? And then finally, at the end, they, when I asked him if there's anything they needed to clean up, the straight guy said to the gay guy, he said, I need to admit to you that I've listened to jokes about people like you. And I've even told those jokes. And I want to apologize to you personally for having done that. And I want you to know you have my word. I'll never do it again. And the two of them went back to the group that this had happened in and sitting side by side facilitated a conversation. So so I think now it's not going to work every time. Nothing's going to work every time. How do you facilitate in those situations like, and, and control the heat, I guess, that must come up? You must have a few techniques for that. Oh, oh, sure. Well, that's you're you're asking me to describe 35 years of practice, <laughs> but um, but what it really comes down to is to invite people to turn hmm. to turn towards themselves and to say, where's that reaction coming from? You know, when people get really hostile and really reactive. You turn to yourself and say, why am I reacting? Well, I'm reacting because that makes me afraid that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. And when we start to realize where our reaction is coming from, we have a better sense of controlling it. Mm, what I mean, I suppose for, for many people there in their daily lives, what's going to inspire them or encourage them to go out there and, and try and understand the other perspective? Because at this stage, all I can think of is that people are just going to be like, you know what, it's easier just to... to stick to what I know and what I believe and just keep looking for that and staying in that loop rather than going outside that comfort zone, I suppose, and, and searching for a deeper understanding. Sure. Well, I think, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't delude myself into thinking that everybody's going to go out and do this because there are some people, like I said, who's, who are suffering from psychosclerosis and there's, these attitudes are so hardened that they're not going to budge. And, you know, but that's okay as long as that's not, you know, everybody. And I think, um, you know, for me, um, there are a number of reasons. I think the first is just, you know, it broadens your perspective on life. It, mm. it makes for a much more interesting and a richer life to have friends from different perspectives. I think that there are a lot of people who are finding that their business environments and their work environments lead them in those directions because, you know, a workplace is really one of the only places anymore that we're forced to work closely with people who are different from us and to get along with them. And so it can make for a much healthier work environment and a lot of of benefits. This is why a lot of businesses are doing diversity and inclusion work. Now it's not just a touchy feely thing to make everybody feel better. It's because the results show up in that if you've got an environment where people understand each other, they collaborate better, they do better work. Do you think, I mean, looking at the closed mindset and the open mindset, there, there seems to be, a lot of favorable benefits, like you just said, success in your in your work and life, um, happier life, uh, all that sort of thing. Having that open mindset, do you think that's that's pretty true in, in your research? Oh, absolutely. I think I think it's it's foundationally true, and that when we understand how we make decisions, uh, you know, this is where the bias piece comes in. We understand how we make decisions and what's influencing us. We make more thoughtful decisions. I mean, when we were studying to work for the book on bias, hmm. um, you know, when I was doing the research on that, you know, one of and studied you know hundreds of different studies, and 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 plus the new you know, breakthroughs in neurocognitive science research. And what we realize is that as human beings, we're far less rational than we think we are. We're much more rationalizing than we are rational. Um, so we come up, 
Well, in other words, what, what we do is the, w- the way we think that we lead lively is, is that we put ourselves into a circumstance and we, what we think we do is we gather information and we try to figure out what's the characteristics of this person or circumstance. So let's say you and I meet for the first time, mm-hmm. right? I think what happens is this is what I've been led to believe happens is that I look at you, I evaluate you, I listen to you and I determine what, how I feel about you. But we know now because we can watch the way the brain works, you know, using functional magnetic resonating imagery and things like this. And we can see that what actually happens is we have an emotional reaction and then our brains very quickly gather evidence to justify that emotional reaction. So if, for example, you remind me of a kid who bullied me when I was in junior high school, and I don't even know that I'm making that connection, but in my hippocampus, in the memory center of the brain, something about the way your eyebrows lift when you speak or the crinkles on your cheek of your smile connects to that guy, John, who was a bully to me. My system immediately says, watch out, this guy could get you. And, And then I start, and all of this is on an unconscious process, I start looking for the things that justify that point of view. Now, if you're different from me in a, in a significant way, race, for example, or, or sexual orientation, that gets magnified because we have a tendency to, to stereotype people who are different from us yeah. far more than we do people who are the same as us. It's actually a psychological phenomenon that's called the outgroup homogeneity effect. Mm-hmm. And so this on the unconscious level is, is forming a lot of our decisions. And, and I think I read some of your work was saying 90, 95%. Um, is formed by this unconscious bias. That's that's exactly right. And, and you can see what I'm talking about if you even look at the way Australians feel about Americans and Americans feel about Australians. You know, most yeah, people sure. mm. in America, if you talk about Australians, see that as a homogeneous group of people. And you know it's not, not at all homogeneous. You have very different points of view, very different kinds of people. But to Americans, Australians are Australians. And I'm sure that's true for many Australians about Americans. Um, uh, whereas, you know, we're, we're as diverse as we can be, uh, you know, in, yeah. in every can imagine, but to somebody outside, Don't really they think all are the same. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a much harder thing. It would seem to to then change and alter. Like obviously, when we're looking at, at an opinion that we hold strongly and, and holds against our identity, we can consciously go, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna find the flip side of this, or I'm gonna talk to someone that has a differing opinion, just to you know go out there and practice this intentional, deliberate way of of understanding the other perspectives. But when it's, it's something personal within like the unconscious biases that we hold that form our decisions, how do we alter that? Well, I think that, that um, this is where um, self, self-awareness self is really important, right. uh, that we have to turn towards ourselves. And in fact, you know, research shows that um, when people learn more about how they're making decisions and, and how their mental process works, that mm-hmm. they tend to behave in ways that are both, first of all, more consistent with their own personal values, and secondly, more egalitarian. I mean, if you know, for example, that, you know, in my, I mean, I see it even in my relationship with my wife. There's certain things that I do that she might get irritated by or that she does that I might get irritated by. Um, but they often go back to her relationship with her father, my relationship with my mother. You know, so if she acts in ways that it used to irritate, you know, I'll give you a perfect example of this. One morning I'm standing in the kitchen and my wife says to me, gee, you know, would you take out the trash? And I noticed I got a little irritated. And then I stopped for a second and looked and then I laughed. She said, what are you laughing about? I said, I realized I just became seven years old and you were my mother because my mother and I used to have these righteous battles about taking out the trash, you know, take out the trash. I will. No, do it now. No, I'll do it later. Don't do, you know, and so at that moment, for some reason, you know, that triggered that 
that emotional memory, and and it felt like an irritation. Where the truth is, I don't care about taking that to trash. Of course, I'll take that to trash, and it's not a big deal. I take it out by myself. I'm a big boy, you know. But but that's the kind of thing that happens <laughs> yeah. all the time. And yeah. and you know, the irony is that for a lot of us, what draws us to our partner, or, you know, our romantic partners, our life partners, is that they remind us somehow of our parents. But at the same time, they can also trigger something because they remind us of our parents. So again, we see both the light and the shadow of that. It's interesting, interesting stuff. And that awareness piece is, is hugely important. How do you, and I'm going to sort of run into some of these questions that I ask most guests, but what sure. sort of practices do you have to, I mean, have you always been that way, an open-minded sort of person, or have you always been very opinionated in, in certain directions? Well, I'm, I, I think anybody who knows me would, would say I'm opinionated. I mm. have no problem sharing my opinions, but I also try to remember their opinions. And I think that's the important distinction. Right. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't have opinions and even strong opinions. Yeah. I just think it's important for us to remember that they are opinions. And often we get confused and think that our opinions are facts. Um, and that's where we get into trouble when we, when we, when we get calcified and, you know, no, the answer is no, I haven't always been that way. I mean, like I said, I did, ha- I did have good modeling for that behavior to some degree, but, um, but it's something that I've developed over the course of my life. And particularly, you know, like a lot of people, it came from my own personal experiences and traumas. You know, I, I, my first marriage ended in divorce and that was very, you know, upsetting. And so I went to, you know, I started in the process of kind of getting myself back to myself. I, I decided I needed to learn more about myself. And so I started to do various different things. I studied studied Eastern philosophy and I did some therapy. I did some other kinds of things and, and in the process started to realize that there was a whole other way of looking at life. And, um, and so, um, so my practices include, um, you know, meditation as part, part of my practice, mindfulness practices, because that helps us slow down the process of the mind and lets the, the slower part of the brain, the more reflective part of the brain kick in rather than just be reactive. Um, Mm. I consciously, as I said, go about trying to get people's point of view. I'll reach out to people and say, Hey, you know, if you can understand this and explain it to me, I'm willing to listen. Um, and, um, and I try to, and I also just try to remember, um, some basic truths about people, which is that, you know, every villain is a hero in their own story. Um, you know, there are very few people who wake up in the morning, for example, and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, it doesn't usually show up that way. These are automatic reactions and they're usually justified to ourselves. And so if we can try to understand the justification that they have for it, then we're often able to find, uh, have a better chance of finding compromise um, than when we're just sure that they're bad. Mm. Yeah. So your your meditation or mindfulness sort of practice, what does that look like? Like, is it a daily sort of ritual for you, or it's a combination? Something. I mean, I do usually have a morning practice where I'll do I'll sit for you know some time in the morning, but I also find that it's it's um, it woven into my day, and mm. it's best. It's like like when I have, for example, one of these days that I'm sure many of us have, where you have meeting after meeting after meeting all day, and you feel a little bit like a two year old running downhill trying to stay on your feet. You know, I'll just take even just a couple of minutes and in between those meetings to stop and close my eyes and just do a little breathing and, and just set, let my system settle and then get ready for the next meeting. And I find that rather than drag the stress from one meeting into the next, it allows me to reset myself. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll just, 
Yeah, and sometimes you, you begin to you begin to get a feel for yourself, and you begin to realize, well, I'm, my, my stress level is really high right now. I need to do something to settle it down. And it's and I think it's important for people to recognize that it's not something you just jump right in and do. You know, sit, sitting for forty minutes, for example, would be excruciating for a lot of people just to do nothing but sit for forty minutes because we're so used to having every minute entertained. So maybe you start with five minutes, and then after you're comfortable with five minutes, you move up to seven minutes, and then to ten minutes, and then to fifteen minutes, and then. Over after a while, you just begin to grow it. It's, it's like a muscle. It's like lifting weights. Is, you know, uh, you keep putting keep putting heavier weights on, and you're developing your mental muscle, your emotional muscle, to be able to do that. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 then another very important piece of it, Lee, is to create the kind of relationships around you where you're open to receiving feedback. And and one of the things I've been really grateful for is that there are people in my life, both personally and professionally, who are not afraid to tell me, "Hey, I think you're off about this. I, I think that you're, you know, I, I don't think you're being really. I don't think you're aware." of where, you know, some of your blind spots about this and, you know, to try not to be defensive when you get that kind of feedback, because sometimes people can see things in our, in us that we can't see in ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And being open to that feedback is, is critical. <laughs> yes. Anybody who's um, married or, or in a partnership knows that, right? <laughs> yeah. No, we avoid it in those situations, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes, but not in health, not in healthy relationships. Though. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, maybe I need to improve on that. Um, what um, I was going to ask you is there something in your like a major belief that has you know shifted dramatically in your life is there something that comes to mind um, well I mean I think that um, you know the, the major I wouldn't say it's a belief but a major orientation has shifted uh, at some point in my life was to realize that um, that most of the upset in my life is not caused by the circumstance I'm dealing with, but by my relationship to that circumstance, my reaction to that circumstance. Mm. Um, and I think that this is something Very that, stoic. yeah, I mean, and, and that doesn't mean that you like everything that's out there, but, um, I like to say to people when you're hysterical, it's likely historical. So, you know, if you, if you've got somebody who, who you meet and you immediately meet them and you're like, really triggered, if you know what I mean by they have an intense emotional reaction, something about this guy creeps me out or something about me, or the same thing can happen in a really positive way. Something about this person really kind of pulls me in. It's almost always that they're reminding you of somebody from your past because more times than not, you haven't even gotten a chance to know that person yet. Mm. So it's clearly that they're reminding you of somebody from your past and, and, um, and also how we deal with circumstances and the context that circumstances occur and all of these things. And I think the big insights that I started to get as I began to move on to this path was um, it, it's easy to blame it on that thing outside, to, you know, to point your finger at that thing outside. But as, as my grandmother used to say, you know, when you point out there, three fingers are pointing back at you hmm. and, you know, what's your reaction to it? And, you know, I noticed that, you know, even in dealing with public figures, you know, like I, you know, and I look at, 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 at uh, President Trump and I can get very agitated when I look at President Trump and then I say, well, why, you know, what is this, what is this triggering in me? Why is it that you know, I'm having such a strong reaction? And, you know, sometimes I can see it and sometimes I can't, but I think that's the path of our deeper learning when we're willing to do that. Yeah. So you said you're 69 now, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Have you found that in, in life that you've become more open? I mean, it said you know, back to your childhood, you had those conversations where your parents sort of forced you to look at the other opinions and be, be more open to those. And I think that's great. But have you found in your own life that your opinions have shifted more quickly as, as you grew and, and been more comfortable to shift? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that, um, and I'm not I'm I'm not sure this is true for everybody. I suspect some people get you know more and more, you know, fixed in their positions over time. I think for me, the opposite has been true because my life is you know it's just I've just gotten humbled by my life. You know, there've been so many times in my life when I thought something was absolutely true, it turned out not to be, or when I thought I was absolutely right about something that I turned out to be wrong about. That I just realized that I take things with a bit more of a grain of salt than um, than I used to, and I, I, I a lot a lot of the places where I used to have exclamation points in my life now I have question marks, um, which is a much healthier way to go about life to be an inquiry around it than to be so sure of yourself all the time. Um, and the irony is that even as I've you know, professionally developed expertise and I'm you know gotten successful books and interviews like this and everything else that I'm I'm probably less definitive about what I feel now than I was, you know, 25 years ago when nobody knew the hell, who the hell I was. So it's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. No, I love it. I think that's great. Um, what, what does success look like to you now? Well, there's no question for me right now. Success looks like, um, love of family, um, being healthy, mentally healthy, uh, contributing to society, um, you know, obviously you have the basics. You have to deal with survival stuff, like making sure you have enough to feed your family, take care of your family. But I think the things that really matter to me is, you know, is my life making a difference? Um, particularly, particularly as I get to this stage in my life where I'm at the stage where most people are retiring or looking at retiring, and I'm definitely, you know, slowing down a bit from what I used to, just because I have other things that I want to do besides work. Um, but to, but to really, you know, say, you know, am, am I, you know has and can what I do have an impact, a positive impact on the world. And and a lot of that has to do, I know, with my upbringing, as I said before, and that we were raised to believe that we really do have a responsibility to the world around us. And, and I feel very grateful to my parents and my and my uh, tradition to, um, hmm. to, to have taught me that. Yeah. Do you... Um do you think if they if they came up for a cure for for death and we could live forever, would you have a, a, an opinion of which way you'd go, whether you'd live forever or whether you'd choose a, a natural death? You know, it's funny. I, I post on Facebook on Facebook every day. I, I for, I've been doing it now for several for a couple of months. Um, I pose an existential question, you know, and and just ask people to respond to it. And it's kind of interesting to see if people look. And that was one of them. I did that, and I think for myself, I love life, hmm. you know, and um, and of course the the conditions beyond that would be what would your physical condition be, what would your mental condition be. You know, I wouldn't want to live forever in a vegetative state, for example, or in constant pain all the time, but. Um, no. Uh, recognizing recognizing that it would be, um, you know, that there would be very painful things about it. Like, for example, if I was the only one living forever, I don't know that I would want to do that because it would be constantly losing people I love you know, my whole life. Um, but uh, but I, I love life and um, I find it um, continually stimulating and interesting. And there's almost unlimited things that I would like to do that I'm running out of time for. So give me some extra time. I'll be happy with it. <laughs> nice. Mate, look, fantastic conversation. Um, yeah, really forward, uh, looking forward to reading the book. Uh, I'll stick the links in the show notes for everyone listening out there today. Our search for belonging, how the need for connection is tearing our culture apart. Um, I'll stick the links um, in there as well uh, for your website, Howard. It's um, Howard Ross or howardjross.com. Um, so that'll be in the show notes as well. Is there any other ways people can reach out to you best, Howard, or? 
Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a howardjross.com as you said. I'm yeah. also on LinkedIn and Facebook. People can get me there. So, and they can also if, they, if anybody wants to send me an email, you can send it. It's Howard at Udarta U D A R T A dot com. Yeah, perfect, mate. Thanks for coming on, guys. Check it all out at thehiddenwire.com. Um, Howard, thanks again. Let's connect again. Hey, Lee, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, and uh, and sending my best to folks over there. Please all stay safe and stay well. Thank you, mate. Cheers, guys. Until next time, peace, passion, purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon